0: So before we jump into the text this week, I just I wanna catch us up on where we are in the story, right? Like what's been going on in the life of Jesus? So Jesus has kind of been traveling around this area in the Middle East, kind of up and down the Jordan River, and he's been teaching and he's, he's been healing people. He's been performing these miracles and he's, he's gotten pretty famous. Like people know about Jesus. They've heard some things that he said. They've heard some things that he's done and these crowds are kind of following him around following him around, like trying to see what he's all about. And he's caught the attention of the Jewish religious leaders. And some of these leaders, particularly the ones um, that are referred to as Pharisees, they're part of this group called the Pharisees, they start to get rather perturbed with Jesus um, because he doesn't seem to have the same ideas of what it means to obey some of these Jewish laws that they do. Like what it looks like to obey these laws, it's, it's not really lining up. Um, with what Jesus is doing, with what the Pharisees believe should be happening. And they're, they're kind of content to put up with it for a while. Um, but Jesus starts saying some crazy things. He starts saying things like, I and the Father are one. So Jesus starts saying like, hey, I'm God. And claiming to be God if you're not God is a big no-no. You don't just walk around doing that. It's, it's well known to the Jewish people that blasphemy is punishable by death. And so it's, it's kind of this, this tense moment. And the Pharisees see it and they're saying like, yeah, we, we get that he's performing miracles. Um, we can't deny that. He has, he has some power, but he can't be God because he's not following these religious laws the way we think he's supposed to. And if, if he's not obeying God's laws correctly, then he, he can't be from God. His power isn't from God. And like, we gotta shut him down. And things really come to a head when Jesus raises this guy Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus kind of becomes the straw that breaks the camel's back. Like the Pharisees are like, all right, like that's it. This, this guy has to go. We gotta shut it down. And they put out the word to the Jewish people. They're like, hey, if you see Jesus, you have to let us know, because um, they're gonna arrest him. They're gonna figure out what to do. And, and Jesus kind of bounces for a while. Like he's in this area where there's a lot of Pharisees and he kind of chills out. He goes, pack, he goes back to this town, kind of on the edge of the wilderness to let things cool down a little bit. But there's this really important Jewish holiday coming up uh, called Passover. And to celebrate Passover, uh, all the Jewish people in the area, they, they make a pilgrimage. They go to Jerusalem to celebrate this holiday. And so there's a buzz around Jerusalem, there's kind of a buzz. It's like, okay, Passover's coming up. Like, the Pharisees want to arrest Jesus. Is he gonna show up? Like, what's gonna happen? Everybody knew that if Jesus came to Jerusalem, like, something was gonna go down. Something's gonna happen. So this is where we find Jesus in the text this week. Um, we're in John chapter 11. If you guys wanna open up, we're gonna read a chunk there. Um, Jesus is making his journey to Jerusalem. And he knows full well that he's, he's literally walking to his death. He's under no illusion of what's about to happen. He's walking towards the cross in obedience to the Father's will. And on his way to the cross, he stops off in this town outside Jerusalem called Bethany, which is where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And here we get to see a beautiful display of extravagant worship. Um, let's pick up on the story. We're in chapter 12, um, verses 1 through 8. If you've got a Bible, follow along with me as I read. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has, had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Okay, right away, I just wanna pause a little bit because I, I want us to feel the tension of this moment, like what's happening. So Jesus is approaching Jerusalem and like everybody and their mom knows that something's gonna happen like the Pharisees want to arrest him, that it's it's like, it's the hot word on the street. Something's gonna happen. But there were some different ideas about what that was gonna be, like what was actually gonna happen when Jesus came to Jerusalem. And some people thought he was gonna roll into Jerusalem like as a conquering king, that he was literally gonna march in and take his place on the throne and reign as king over Israel. And that like, that's what they heard, that this Christ, this Messiah figure, was going to do. But we know from some other gospel accounts, specifically um, Matthew 16, that for a while now, Jesus has been telling his disciples that when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer at the hands of the re- religious leaders, he's going to be put to death, and then in three days, he's going to raise back to life. So for the people at that table with Jesus, like his disciples and his close friends, there's, there's like this sober anticipation for what's about to happen. Like Jesus has been talking about his death. There's an atmosphere of tension around this whole journey back towards Jerusalem. Let's keep reading. Verse three, it says, "'Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment "'made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus "'and wiped his feet with her hair. "'The house was filled with the fragrance fragrance of perfume.'" But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. You could read that sentence as well as leave her alone. She has intended to keep it or she has kept it. For the day of my burial, for the poor, you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So Mary, um, Mary's the sister of Lazarus. Mary approaches Jesus as he's at the table, and in a beautiful display of faith and devotion, she breaks open this expensive perfume. It was worth about a year's wages. We're talking like forty to fifty thousand dollars in today's money. And she breaks open this perfume and she anoints Jesus with it. And she wipes his feet with her hair. And Judas, like, Judas freaks out, right? Because he thinks this, he thinks it's a huge waste of money. He thinks Mary just blew a bunch of money on nothing. It's like, what a dumb, reckless thing to do with a year's wages. He sees it as a missed opportunity to, like, put some money in his own pocket. Like, he wants to get a cut of that. And so their minds are in very different places. Like, They're in the same situation, but Mary and Judas are concerned with really different things. And we kinda get the sense that Mary knows something that Judas doesn't know. There's something about the situation that Mary gets, and Judas is just like super blind to it. But like they have all the same information. Like they both know Jesus, they both know that things are tense, that he's going to Jerusalem, he's likely gonna die. They have all the same information. So like what's the deal? What's causing Mary and Judas to read the situation so different? The difference here, guys, is who they believed Jesus to be. To Judas, Jesus, he was just a meal ticket. Like he'd been overseeing the disciples' funds, he'd been taking some money for himself, and Jesus was just somebody that he could exploit for his own gain. But Mary saw Jesus differently. Mary called Jesus Lord. She believed that he was from God. She believed that he was who he said he was. And out of that belief came this selfless, extravagant act of worship. She knew that Jesus was worthy of it. Guys, your worship flows out of who you believe Jesus to be. Like your thoughts about Jesus, who you think he is, your worship is gonna flow out of that belief. And when I say worship, I don't mean like one grand sweeping gesture. Right, I'm not talking about like how loud or how passionately you sing when we play songs like how high can you raise your hands? Like that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how you live your life. Romans 12:1 It says, "I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship." It's your life lived for Jesus, like that's worship, that's what it is. And that phrase, spiritual worship, it can also be translated as rational service. I just love that. It's like, it's the end of a line of logic, right? It's like, once you get who Jesus is, once you understand what he's done for you on the cross, the only rational response is to offer your life to him. It's like, he gave his life up for you. The only thing that makes sense is that now you live for him when you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, to do something selfless and extravagant for Jesus. It's not irrational or illogical. It's the only thing that makes sense. But that looks weird. That looks weird to the outside world, right? Like if people don't have the same idea, the same belief of who Jesus is, those things, those things are gonna look weird. Like just living in obedience to Jesus is gonna look weird. People would be like, like, no, 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 like, you shouldn't tithe. You shouldn't give your money to the church. Like, You should keep your money. Think about how much further in life you can get ahead if you just keep your money. Or maybe somebody's like, well, like why aren't you and your boyfriend or your girlfriend, why aren't you guys having sex? Like, You like each other. You love each other. You should be displaying your affection for each other that way. Or maybe like, wait, like, why, why aren't you going to come out and party with us anymore? Like, what are you doing on Thursdays? Yeah, I know. You could be doing something else. Here you are. And guys, like, I've been on the outside looking in, right? And trust, like, it, it looks strange. Even the little things. Like, my freshman year of college, this guy, he shared his testimony with me. He shared his God story with me. And I was like, uh, okay, okay like thanks I guess I don't know like I, I didn't get it like even as a kid that grew up in the church like I didn't understand why Jesus was so important to him it just was like over my head something didn't add up for me it's like the math didn't make sense because I was missing a part of the equation but as I begin to learn more about Jesus and as I begin began to believe those things that I learned about him more and more it was like oh like this is this is starting to come together starting to make sense. Uh, I have this friend, Brian. Brian is one of my favorite human beings in the world. If you come up to me later, I will talk like at nauseum about Brian because he's just, he's funny. He's a funny human being uh, and I just love him a ton. And uh, he's probably upset that I'm using him as a sermon illustration because he doesn't like to be talked about. I did not ask him if I could talk about him. I'm just going for it. Uh, Brian is a strong man. And when I say that Brian is a strong man, I mean that he is both a man that possesses a great amount of strength, but also that he participated in strongman competitions. If you don't know what a strongman competition is, it's worth the Google search. Like it's nuts. People are like pulling semi-trucks around and they have like these big concrete boulders that they like lift, I guess, like set it on stuff. It's like you got tractor tires and you're flipping them around for some reason, I guess. Um, so Brian did that. And uh, Brian used to be the strength training coach for the New York Jets. Yeah, he's a strong dude. He can like lift cars and stuff or whatever. He, his job was to teach strong people how to get stronger. It was pretty cool. Like he got to work in this incredible facility with these famous athletes and he made a ton of money doing it. But then he left that job to go work at a small young church in Iowa. The dude left a six-figure job working for an NFL team. Rex Ryan, who uh, he was the coach of the Jets at the time, he like he was trying to get Brian to stay. He was like he was offering him a raise. He's trying to get him to stay. Like you can do Bible study with the guys on the team. Like just stay here, Brian. And for real, he was like you can do whatever you want, man. And but Brian was determined. Like, he was resolved. So he moved from New York City to Iowa City to work at a church. Yeah, I, it's rough. I get it. Um, I live there, I know. Uh, <laughs> to work at a church where he made about a tenth of his old salary, half of which he fundraised. And, like, the hardest part of it all was Drew Stevenson, our pastor, was his boss, which, trust me, guys, it's a rough go. It's hard. It's hard. I'm just kidding, he's great. If you're listening to this later, Drew, you're great. Please give me a raise. <laughs> I I love that story. I love Brian's story. And it, it's crazy. It seems insane to me. Like the things that he left behind. But Brian met Jesus. And Brian believed that Jesus was the Son of God, that he came to earth to live a perfect life that Brian couldn't live, and that Jesus died a death that Brian deserved so that Brian could be free from his sin, and he wanted to go tell some college kids about it. Like, what he believed about who Jesus is totally reoriented what he wanted to live his life for. Guys, who, who is Jesus to you? Like, who do you believe him to be? Maybe a better question is, what does your life right now Say about who you believe Jesus is? If we were if we were to examine your life, what would it say about who you believe Jesus is? If you asked me that question as a freshman in college, I, I like I maybe could have given you the right answer about Jesus. I probably could have said like some Bible y words, I probably could have given you like a lot of correct facts about him. But if you looked at my life, it, it would have told you that. Like, Jesus was a fun fact. He wasn't my savior. He wasn't God. He was, he was an anecdote. Guys, the manner in which you live your life is going to reveal in the truest sense not what you know about Jesus, but who you believe Jesus to be. And who you believe Jesus to be is gonna determine your worship. It's gonna determine how you live your life. Let's keep moving through the text. Let's keep moving through this story. So the next day, um, Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, and there's, there's quite a hubbub around him coming into the city, and this hubbub that I'm referring to is called the triumphal entry, and it's insane that we're not talking about it, but like I said earlier, you should go back and read it for yourself. There's lots of stuff that we're just breezing over. Go read about it. It's crazy. And so... Um, So Jesus is in the city, and the Pharisees know that he's here, but they're afraid to arrest him. Like, they they see him, he's out in public, but they're afraid to arrest him because people like him. And they're concerned that, like, hey, if we arrest this guy, like, we're going to start a riot. Like, people are going to go nuts. So they're kind of hanging back. They're kind of waiting for an opportunity. And a few days pass, and now it's time for the Passover feast. And I mentioned uh, earlier that Passover is a Jewish holiday, and it commemorates when God delivered his people out of slavery, brought them out of the land of Egypt, and the Passover feast, it's a, it's a ritual meal that marks the beginning of a week-long celebration. And this is where we're gonna jump back in the story. It's this other snapshot that we're gonna focus in on and get this picture of extravagant service. It's this intimate moment where Jesus is together with his disciples. He's sharing this Passover meal. Let's read it. We're in John 13, we're going to look at verses 1 through 17. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if, you do, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Pause for just a second. Like, Jesus knows that Judas is gonna betray him. Jesus has brought Judas into this inner circle. Judas has been hanging out with them for a good three years now. And Jesus bends down and he washes the feet of a man who only moments later is gonna be running out of the room to go trade his life for 30 pieces of silver. It's unbelievable. Let's keep going. It says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Okay, so to understand the significance of this moment, the significance of what Jesus is doing, we have to understand a little bit about the culture. So we in modern day America, we don't really have like an honor-based culture, and I don't mean to say that like we don't show each other honor or we don't elevate certain people or jobs or offices above others, but we don't really have like a specific structure in place to do that. For the most part, we don't have any like rigid social protocols by which we distinguish people's different levels of honor. But here's a shocker. The culture in the middle of East, in the Middle East around 30 AD, was a little bit different. It's not like America not like today. Um, <laughs> that was supposed to be funnier. It's funny. <laughs> we're going to move on. It was a little bit different. Like certain jobs were formally distinguished as more honorable than others. There would be like a distinguished guest of honor at feasts and celebrations and weddings. Even where you sat at these meals mattered. Like there were places of honor around the table. Showing honor, receiving honor, holding a place of honor in your community, it was was really important. And even among the tasks of slaves, there were more honorable and less honorable tasks. And washing people's feet landed right at the bottom of that list. It was proper etiquette that when you welcomed a guest into your house for a meal, that you would have one of your slaves wash your guest's feet. And this is the ancient Middle East we're talking about. Like people didn't have some cozy socks and a fresh pair of J's to walk around in. Like they're, they're rocking sandals everywhere they go. And so their feet are disgusting. They've got dust and dirt and like whatever else they stepped in on their way to your house. And their feet are gross. They probably got Chaco tan lines. Like some pretty intense Chaco tan lines because you know they're wearing that pair of sandals out until it's done, just saying. Um, uh, so like if you, if you get grossed out by people's feet, cause they're a little stinky when they take their shoes off, like this is a full on nightmare scenario for you. You don't want to be in this position. It's a dirty job. And it was such a dirty, dishonorable job that it was on a short list of tasks that most Jewish slave owners didn't even ask their slaves to do, ju- their slaves to do if they were fellow Jews like they would get one of their Gentile, one of their non-Jewish slaves to perform this task. So when Jesus assumes this role, the disciples panic, like he's dishonoring himself and they're just super uncomfortable, especially Peter. He's just like, Jesus, no, like this is ucky. You don't wanna do this. (laughs) He's like, don't degrade yourself like that. Don't stoop that low. Jesus was their teacher and their leader, A student would would maybe wash a teacher's feet to show honor, but a teacher would never stoop that low to wash his student's feet. So the disciples are super uncomfortable with this act of service and humility because it goes against everything they know. And what Jesus says to them is it's a total paradigm shift to how they've been viewing the world. It flips everything upside down. Let's read together in verse 13. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Okay, let's think about this for a second. Jesus is God, right? Like he was literally the fullness of God in human form. Jesus could have walked into the room, any room, anywhere in the history of time, and he could jump up on a chair and just start yelling, look at me, everybody look at me. Like give me worship. Come around, look at me and praise me. And he would have been fully right to do so. Like he could make a bunch of noise and he could demand attention and adoration. And that would be a completely appropriate thing for him to do because he's God and he deserves every ounce of attention and adoration this universe that he's created has to offer. He's got every right to demand honor and praise from everyone and everything around him. But what does he do instead? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Why? Why is he doing this? Why not assume that position of honor? Why stoop this low? It's because Jesus loved them. Jesus loved his disciples. And Jesus knew who he was. His identity was secure, and because of that, he wasn't afraid to perform a shocking and disgusting act of humility to demonstrate his love for his disciples. He wasn't scared of a dirty job. So, fun fact about me: um, I've held a number of janitorial positions in my lifetime. It's very true. Starting at the uh, the tender age of eleven, in fact which seems weird, but it was really sweet. I was the student janitor at my elementary school in sixth grade, and yeah, it was awesome. I would go around after after school every day for like an hour, I would like gather the trash from the classrooms, I'd like sweep the gym floor, maybe wash some windows, that kind of stuff, and you're like, hey, that's really lame, you shouldn't have a job in sixth grade, but guys, they paid me money. I was getting minimum wage, I was pulling in $5.15 an hour, it was super dope, and an 11-year-old can buy a lot of Legos if you give him five bucks a day, so it was pretty prime, and then summer jobs after that, I, like, I worked for the school as a janitor, like, cleaning stuff up during the summers. Uh, for, like, three summers, I worked maintenance and, like, lands, groundskeeping stuff at a community college. I started early with the dirty jobs. Like, I had, I had plenty of them. But through all my jobs, through all the jobs I've ever had, the nastiest task that I've ever completed uh, was working for a church. It was a ministry. So like one Sunday when I wasn't leading worship, I was just kind of like going around through our equipment, kind of like organizing things, tidying things up. We're a mobile church. Um, we're over at Midpoint Event Center. If you don't come, you should come. It's really fun. Sunday mornings. Um, we're a mobile church, so like I, I don't really have a lot of opportunities to do this kind of upkeep. So, when I wasn't leading, I was going through cleaning stuff out. And uh, as, as I did that in the course of doing this, I went through all the headphones that were there. And I went through all the little ear tips on those headphones that we use as in ear monitors. And I cleaned all the earwax off from the outside and the inside of those little earpieces. And guess what? It was disgusting. It was super gross. I was literally like pulling chunks of other people's earwax out of these earpieces. Yeah, it was exactly like that. Pretty gross. But like genuinely, guys, I was was happy to do it. And I was happy to do it because I like, I love the people that use those headphones. Like I love my volunteers. I love my church. I was happy to do it. I would clean their dank earphones every day if I had to. You can quote me on it. Put it on my tombstone. Cleaned the dankest headphones. (laughs) Guys, Jesus loves you, and he's not afraid to get his hands dirty to show you that he loves you. He's not afraid to humble himself, to kneel down in your muck and filth to make you clean. And for him, that meant going to the cross in your place. He was perfect, deserving of only honor and glory, but he took on your sin and your brokenness and he carried it to the cross in his body so that you would know that he loves you. He says, whatever crap you've got, whatever garbage that you've tracked in today, like I can clean you. I know who I am. I'm the only person that can do it. And I'm not afraid to humble myself to demonstrate my power over sin and death and show my love for you. I'm up to the task. I've done the dirty work. And you didn't deserve anything. You didn't didn't do anything to deserve any of it. He didn't wait for you to get your act together. You didn't like clean yourself up up enough that he just like had to wipe a little smudge off your toe for you to be clean. Like you were dead. Dead people cannot clean themselves. Can't do anything for themselves. He did it because he loves you. Ephesians 2, four and five says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love With which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Jesus' great act of service on the cross demonstrates his great love for you. We get to look at the mess and the filth of the cross, and through that, see a beautiful and an extravagant love for us. And now Jesus calls us to demonstrate that same love for one another. Let's finish by looking at verses 34 and 35 in John 13. He's with his disciples still, and he says to them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He's saying that the world is gonna know that you're with me if you love each other like I've loved you. And it's kind of insane if you think about it because how did Jesus love his disciples? Like how does he love us? Perfectly. He does it perfectly. He is perfect at displaying his love for us. He literally embodied the essence of what it was to love in the person of Jesus, we see love in its truest and its purest form. So what he's calling his disciples to do, what he's calling us to do, it's impossible, right? It's impossible, but he's serious. He's not kidding around. He's saying, I want you to love each other in a way that is entirely beyond your human capacity. Guys, the only way we can be obedient to this command The only way that we can be obedient to any of Jesus's commands is by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't don't have that ability in and of ourselves, but Jesus gives his own spirit to live in us, to empower us to love and serve each other. And he says, that's how they'll know. That's how the world is gonna be able to tell that you're with me. Salt Company, what would it look like if we washed each other's feet? Like, what would it look like if we loved and served each other in a way that this campus leaned in and said, what's going on there? Like, something's different about these people. I've I've never seen people interact with each other that way. I've never seen people treat each other with such service and humility and love. Guys, if we can do that, if we can pull that off, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in this city, this campus, is gonna get a beautiful picture of Jesus like they have never seen before. Guys, let's pray together that that would be true. Bow your heads with me. Jesus, thank you for, for taking on my filth. Thank you for seeing my mess, which just overwhelms me. And you look at it and you say, I got this. Jesus, you didn't hesitate. You didn't falter on your way to the cross. You endured the cross, despising the shame because of your great love for me, because of the joy that was set before you. And Jesus, I pray that you would empower us to live in a way that reflects what you've accomplished for us on the cross. I pray that you can help us to to love each other in a way that's extravagant and beautiful that our acts of worship to you would just reek of perfume, that it would have this essence about it that people are like, something's different, that the way that we treat each other would be beyond our own ability to love and to serve. Jesus, we we want this place to get a better picture of you and your kingdom, and we can't do it on our own. We couldn't make ourselves clean, and we can't live this life of devotion without you. Jesus, would you empower us by your Holy Spirit? And would you do the things that we can't do? I pray this in your name. Amen.